Welcome to the eighth episode of the ongoing series, The Ten Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness, here on Svarim Chatter. And I'm Nachi Weinstein. In this episode of the series, we discuss one of the most fascinating characters connected to the Lost Tribes, David Ruvaini. A dark-skinned man who appears on the world stage in Italy in 1524, claiming to be the brother of King Yosef, who is the king of Ruvain, God, and half of Menasha. Ruvaini ends up meeting with the Pope, the King of Portugal, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, as he attempts to secure an army to take the Holy Land back from the Muslims. Ruvaini, along the way, inspires Converso or Moranos in Portugal to return to Judaism, including one Diego Pires, who ends up becoming Shlomo Molcho, who is burned at the stake after his meeting with Ruvaini, with the Emperor Charles V. Ruvaini himself also suffers the same unfortunate end of being burned at the stake, and he has the distinction of being perhaps the only unconverted Jew ever to be burned at the stake, as for listeners who are familiar from the Spain series in Svarim Chatter, the Inquisition in general only had jurisdiction over Christians or converted Jews, not just a Jew. So Ruvaini has that you know unfortunate end. But this diary... What we're discussing here in this episode, which the new translation is Diary of a Black Jewish Messiah, the 17th century journey of David Rubini throughout through Africa, the Middle East, and Europe by Professor Alan Verskin is a wonderful translation. And uh, while much of this story and this diary really concerns Rubini and his story, the Ten Lost Tribes is an overarching theme throughout, as that's his claim. And I highly recommend this book. I don't usually make recommendations, but I do highly recommend this to anyone interested in Jewish history, the Ten Lost Tribes, and and just if you're interested in an adventure story or novel, it's a fantastic, it's a great translation, and it's a wonderful story that really everyone should read. There's a short introduction here from Professor Roskin, as well as the text. Uh, it was out of print for a while, now it's back in print and in English with some light notes. It's really wonderful and a, a, a wonderful tale that does have a sad ending. The corporate sponsor of this series is, as always, Gluck Plumbing. For all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full-service division from boiler replacement, main sewer line snakeouts, cameraing main lines, to a simple faucet leak Gluck Plumbing service division as you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. And if you call, please tell them you heard them on the Swarm Chatter podcast. This episode of the series is sponsored by the Virtual Halacha Program. How do you want your perm to look? Is it really all about finding the best costumes, rushing around, making deliveries, and ingesting insane amounts of food and drink? Or do you want your perm to be different, special, and meaningful? For a limited time, the Virtual Halacha Program is offering a free limud in Hilchas Purim. This is for serious learners who want to see the sugi inside with guidance and clarity. The Virtual Halacha Program, VHP, offers a digital platform that enables learning which is structured yet flexible for a busy schedule. Click on the link in the show's notes, and for those on the WhatsApp chat or on Twitter, I'll post a flyer where you can see more information. And this is appropriate now that we are in Adar Aleph. You still have some time to pour some extra time to learn up on Hilchas Purim. Finally, this episode is also sponsored by Binyamin and Esti Kamenetsky in honor of my grandparents, Shelley and Henry Frisch, and my aunt and uncle, Ellie and Vivi Rosenfeld. Mr. Kamenetsky is a uh, fan of the podcast, and we met a year ago, a little over a year ago, and we were talking about the Shopsi Svi series, which he really enjoyed. And I suggested this, and he said he wanted to sponsor an episode, and I suggested this one. I said this is the most similar to Shopsi Svi. So hopefully uh, he enjoys it, and I thank him for the sponsorship. And if anyone wants to sponsor an individual episode of this series or in general on the podcast, please email me, sfarmchatter at gmail.com or check the uh, information and links in the show's notes below. You can 
uh, also subscribe to the Farm Chatter Substack, which is a like a blog. You get email directly to you. Um, there's a link in the show's notes for that as well. And also for those that are interested in writing reviews of Svarim or short essays or short or long, you can email me svarimchatter at gmail.com. Happy to take submissions for those interested in writing there as well. Uh, if you can please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform, especially Apple, a review um, and a rating does help. So thank you for those that do that. And enjoy this episode about David Ravani. As I said, I highly recommend the book. And I don't think I mentioned it, but the book in paperback is $28 on Amazon. I'll put the link. It's not expensive. And uh, very much recommend reading it. And enjoy the uh, the discussion here on the podcast and the snippets, really, from the diary that, again, highly recommend that you read. So enjoy this episode of the 10 Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be joined by Professor Alan Furskin, who is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Rhode Island. I will be discussing David Ravani and specifically the new book, new translation that Professor Furskin just translated, edited, and published, uh, titled Diary of a Black Jewish Messiah, the 16th Century Journey of David Ravani Through Africa, the Middle East, and Europe, published by Stanford University Press. And We'll be talking about David Ravani, that's Sarah Sashvalton, the Lost Tribes, and uh, lots of different things, uh, Europe in the 16th century, lots of there's lots of different things in this uh, autobiography. So uh, thank you, Professor Ruskin, for joining me. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, so my whole academic journey began when I started studying Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed in college. And uh, I was really interested in the whole environment that uh, produced the guy, the guy to the perplexed. So I started learning more about uh, medieval Muslim Spain and about uh, Jews and Christians and Muslim life within Muslim Spain. I started studying Arabic. And then the inevitable question was, what happened? Uh, why is that environment not uh, not there anymore? And I began learning about the Christian conquest of Spain, which gradually forced Muslims and Jews out of the area through a process of uh, expulsion, forced migration, uh, forced conversion, and so on and, and so and so forth. And because I had uh, Arabic language skills, I first explored that uh, with with regard to Muslims in Spain. So my first book was all about how Muslims adapted to living under Christian rule. In, uh, in Spain after living exclusively under Muslim rule for centuries. And I wrote a book about, uh, really two books about that. And um, now I'm returning to the same question, this, this question of what happened to, to, to medieval Spain, but looking at it through a Jewish lens, through the eyes of David Ruveni. Uh, David Ruveni lives in the immediate aftermath of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. And uh, finding out more about the people that he met, the lives that he touched uh, in the wake of those events. Yeah, he shows up in uh, really where we, where we see him, I guess, historically is when he shows up in Venice in the 1520s. Yeah. So, um, OK, but I, I, that, that I guess, explain, but how specifically did you decide I'm going to translate Ravenni's diary, uh, his travelogue, autobiography, whatever, all of the above, well, we can call it. How did you decide you're going to get involved in that specifically? Uh, so the, I, I teach a lot in in synagogues, Jewish history in in synagogues. Really, anyone who who will invite me, and um, 
Uh, one of the questions that I I, I keep getting is uh, due to the due to the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, what are the relations exactly between Jews and Blacks historically speaking? So I started reading Jonathan Schorsch's book called Jews and Blacks in the Early Modern World, and I saw in a footnote this reference to David Rubini's diary, and I'd heard of the diary before, but Schorsch has a little note saying many people thought he was black. And I found that very, uh, very intriguing. So I managed to get the diary. It wasn't so easy because it was during the pandemic and everything was shut down. And I started, I started reading and translating it. I started reading and translating it with my 12 year old twin daughters who also really enjoyed it. And, uh, I felt that I had to get, get it out there so people could, uh, would be able to read it. Yeah. And that's something that we'll get into, I guess, really is, uh, was, was he black or was he not? Yes. I mean, yeah, that's something we'll get into right away. I mean, in the title, like I said, Diary of a Black Jewish Messiah. Messiah, they think he was Messiah. Black, was he black? We'll get into that. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it's, as you say, your, your twin daughters enjoyed it. I mean, it's a rollicking tale, I guess. It's really the great thing is finding out how many other people enjoyed it, too. So um, uh, Max Brott, who was uh, Kafka's uh, uh, executor, the executor of his will, and he was famous for not burning Kafka's works after he died, despite Kafka's orders. But Kafka wrote, uh, Max Brot wrote a historical novel called Prince Ruveni, all about uh, Ruveni's life. And then I discovered David Bergelson, you know, during the Holocaust, he's writing a play about uh, David Ruveni. He feels that that message is important in that context of, of the Holocaust, in his case, in Soviet Russia. So I found so many fans along the way of David Ruveni, um, but no complete translation in English. So I feel that that uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to share that with more people. Yeah, and I think even the Hebrew edition of Zev uh, Eskoli, mm -hmm. I think Presnay is not around anymore, and the mm -hmm. manuscript is lost. We, we can talk all about that, but again, it's a it's a fun book. It reads like fiction. It might be fiction. Um, <laughs> we, we can we, it, not it's completely, a, it's a, but yes. <laughs> but it, correct, and we'll get into that. But it mm -hmm. is a lot of fun. I will say that a very enjoyable mm -hmm. read for everyone. Who will say that right away. It's really mm -hmm. just a, a pleasure to read it. Um, we'll okay. So let's let's. Start off all the way over there. Okay, who is David Ruveni? Listeners uh, might be familiar from their own and might be familiar from other episodes of the podcast where this has been touched upon. We've discussed it, but here this episode is just dedicated to him. Who is he? Where is he from? What do we know? And we'll get into more of this in the diary, but kind of with that and other sources, what's his story? So I think that that's the story that historians uh, can tell about him begins in 1524. Uh, he shows up in Venice, and he says that he is the general of the army of a vast Jewish kingdom, some 300,000 Jews. We're talking a large kingdom. And where is that kingdom located? Just next to Mecca. And um, he, uh, so he does not claim, at least according to his own accounts, that he's the Messiah, although many Jews believe him to, 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 be, the, to be the Messiah. Um, but he claims to have this ambassadorial role. And uh, he wants to make his way to the Pope. And what does he want to ask the Pope for? He wants to ask the Pope for ships and weapons in exchange for an alliance with his uh, Jewish kingdom uh, uh, in, in Arabia. And this is a deal that a lot of uh, European rulers think might be good because they need a friendly power in the Red Sea that can help them against the Ottomans. So he's offering something, something that uh, something that they might actually they they might actually want, and he's not asking for that much. 
the kinds of weapons he asked are not that expensive. So some people are thinking about placing a small bet on him. Uh, should I continue through his through his journey or? You can continue. I just want to jump in. So he says that his brother is King Yosef, King Joseph of the of uh, yes. of um, three Shvatim, right? Uh, yes. So so he says that's what he he says, and um, at this point, what is it? Reuven God and half of Menashe, right? I think. Yes. And and then he so this is what he sells them. Uh, now, let's just talk about the black part right away. I mm-hmm. mean, he where do we know? I mean, we have I think Farisol and maybe others describe him. Where where do we have the description of him as being black? Where where does these descriptions come from? So we have multiple multiple descriptions of him, both from his friends and from his enemies, some from Jews, some from Christians, and all of them say that he's black. And uh, the question is what 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 does black what does black mean in this in this in this context? And uh, at least two of our sources say that he's black one says he's black like the uh, like the Abyssinians, like the Ethiopians. Uh, those are the words of a, of an Italian diplomat. Uh, who uh, who has experience with uh, with moving and seeing different kinds of people? Uh, we also have another source, a Jewish source, which says he's Shachor Kakushi, and I should emphasize that that's not in the modern Hebrew sense of the term. Uh, it probably means black as a Nubian. So we're talking about uh, again a kind uh, uh, associating his looks with someone coming from Africa. Uh, so I think it's beyond dispute that he was that he was black. He was perceived as black by everyone who saw who saw him. Now, were there other black Jews that the Jews of Italy who see him were familiar with, or were they not? Do we know that they were familiar with any others? So um, they were they were they were not familiar with any other black Jews. Black Jews do appear, and uh, if you look at the Cairo Geniza, we have references to black Jews coming from coming from Abyssinia and so on and so forth. So um, the people are not Jews in the world are not unaware of the of the possibility of 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 black Jews, and uh, I think what makes it plausible for them is that they've just discovered black Christians. Uh, so I'm going to back up a little bit and talk about this legend of Prester John. So. In the early Middle Ages, Christians have this, this, this legend that somewhere adjacent to the, to the Muslim world is this really powerful Christian kingdom that is going to help them against the Muslim power, against the, against the Ottomans. And everyone is terrified of the Ottomans in this period. Well, every Christian is terrified of the Ottomans in this period because the Ottomans are a much stronger power than, Christ, than Christians. So they need all the help they can get. And this uh, Prester John, this Christian king, might be able to might be able to help them. Now, where is Prester John's kingdom? There are all kinds of guesses. Some people say it's in India. Some people say it's in Africa. And then the Portuguese begin to explore Africa. They begin to ex- uh, expand their empire, and they go to Abyssinia. And lo and behold, there's a Christian king. And they say the legends are true. We have discovered Prester John, and he's going to help us in our battles against the Muslims in the Red Sea in the Red Sea area. And Jews are also influenced by these legends because if they've discovered an unknown Christian king. Uh, where, uh, where are where are the tribes located? Maybe in the same place that the Christians uh, discovered this hitherto unknown uh, Christian power. So Jewish legends develop about where are the where where are the lost tribes? They're in they're in Africa. They're in battle with uh, this newly discovered Christian Christian ruler. Uh, so Jews at this point are imagining that the lost tribes, or many of them, are located in Africa. Uh, probably around Abyssinia. 
Okay, yeah, and Prester John, um, Ruveni does mention Prester John at least yeah. once, if not more, in the diary. Yes. And that, we, we, I can leave more specifics about Prester John for another episode. But yeah, and Ruveni is aware like, of all of these legends. That's why he's so persuasive. He uh, he can uh, he he speaks to people in their own apocalyptic language. He speaks to people in their own mythical with with uh, with regard to their own myths. And he says to the Pope, he wants a letter so that he can go and visit uh, Prester John, just as you said there. Yeah, that's what he says. Exactly. So yeah. He tells this to the Pope. So um, a couple more things. Do we know how old Ravenni is when he shows up on the international scene or on the Italian scene in 1524? We have no clue. We don't, he does, they don't say his age. All that we know about him is that he's very short, that he has a body which is covered in scars that everyone assumes is because of all of his military uh work and that he only speaks hebrew which everyone finds very difficult to understand but he speaks it because that's the official language of his jewish kingdom in arabia and he also speaks arabic uh now whether he knew some other languages on the side he definitely didn't admit to them but he is such a good reader of the politics of his age where he's in all of those christian courts of the royal courts of the period and he reads them so well it's hard for me to imagine that he didn't know one of those languages as well. Yeah, and it seems that the Hebrew speaking of the Asara yeah. Shvatim is the, this mm -hmm. is the, the, the purported language of, the, this is the, uh, something that happens with Eldon Hadani in the ninth yeah. century, right? A couple centuries before him. So it's the same thing mm -hmm. again. Now, you mentioned Arabia there. Where was he from? I know this is a question that scholars still have. Where do we know? I mean, where, what's your opinion uh, about where he is from? What are the, what are some of the general different opinions though also? So uh, guesses as to where he uh, he is from are all over the map. Uh, some people imagine that he's an Ashkenazi Jew, and they think that he speaks Yiddish. And what is the basis for all of their guesses? Their guesses, trying to guess his his mother tongue by the language that he uses in in his diary. And the language in this diary, I can tell you, is absolutely anarchic. Uh, it's uh, it's very easy to understand. It's it's a, it written in a very make do kind of kind of Hebrew, but the grammar and the syntax is just not there. And sometimes it involves a certain amount of creative creative guesswork. So people see uh, traces of Slavic languages. People see traces of Yiddish. There are people who read the diary and see traces of Arabic. Arabic. There are people who say. Um, uh, that there are tra traces of Romance languages. Um, you name it, people guess it because he's black. Some people say that he's uh, he's he's a Jew from Abyssinia. Uh, I say, given that uncertainty, and given that he may have had help writing that diary, one of his secretaries may have helped him write it down. We just can't make guesses on that on that basis. So I think we have to sit back and say we just don't know. Right, and. Uh... Yeah, this is kind of the question. And we're going to talk more about the diary, its language and who wrote it and the manuscript. I'll leave that to the end. I want to talk about mm -hmm. his story. I think that's more uh, yes. interesting to start off over here. Okay. Um, just one more thing on the title, because you put it in the title, so we have to discuss it here in the beginning. We discussed the black part, but you also said black Jewish Messiah. Mm -hmm. Does he view himself as Messiah? I believe at one point he says, I am not the Messiah in the diary. I am a sinner every day or something. He says... Is that what he really viewed himself as? Do we, did he view himself as the Messiah? What did others view him as? Um, so many people uh, believed him to be the Messiah. It's true, absolutely, as you say, that he says he's, he's not the Messiah. But there are a few things that we have to, that we have to bear in mind. That um, 
people who claim to be the Messiah often don't announce their messianic uh, uh, intentions immediately. So uh, with the messianic claim we know about best, uh, Shabbatai Tzvi, it isn't for some years into his mission that uh, he's actually proclaimed to be the Messiah. He's talking about messianic times. He's talking about the imminence of this of this messianic period. But uh, that claim about him himself is made later. So it's not that surprising that he's denying that. Uh, and I also think that this is not like Monty Python's Life of Brian. Uh, people don't just uh, happen to arbitrarily identify someone as the Messiah. Uh, he's leading them on in 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 some way. Uh, but there's something I think is even more even 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 more important that uh, uh, Ruveni does, which I think is important for later later messianism. And I think he's taking up something which which you see in in the Rambam. Now, the Rambam really wants to dampen messianic enthusiasm in, in his time. It's becoming very destructive. He writes a letter to the Jews in Yemen who are uh, plagued with 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 a, with a false false messiah. And he wants to make it more difficult for people to claim to be the messiah. So one of the things, if you look at the Mishneh Torah, what he says, he says that the establishment of the Sanhedrin has to precede uh, the messiah. That's That's something that he says. And what's the intention of this? It means that you can't just have a charismatic individual coming up and announcing himself to, to, to be Mashiach. Uh, you have to have the support of the rabbis in some, in, 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 in some way. Um, and I think that Rambam's intention in this is uh, to make it more difficult for people to announce that, that they're Messiah. And those Messiahs are just so destructive uh, when, they, when they come in, so destabilizing for Jewish population. So he makes it more difficult. What does Ruveni do? He says, uh, he's really saying to Rambam, Challenge accepted. He comes with a Sanhedrin. In his kingdom in Arabia, there's a Sanhedrin, and lo and behold, he has a letter of support from the Sanhedrin of his brother's kingdom in, 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 in Arabia. So he's talking about the kinds of political, Ruveni is talking about the kinds of political organization necessary in order to launch oneself as the Messiah. You need a Sanhedrin. You need an army. You need to be an accomplished diplomat. You need to have political political contacts, and um, and uh, this is a very influ very influential for the kinds of messianic activity that continue in the 16th century. I'll mention one example, and and uh, is, which is in terms of the reintroduction of smicha in Tzfat in the 1530s, where uh, with Yaakov Berav is attempting to reintroduce smicha with the idea that eventually a Sanhedrin is going to be is going to going to be formed, and. Uh, 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 Yaakov Berov and his circle were very aware of Ruveni. Many of them were from these exact uh, populations in Spain and Portugal, where Ruveni had been had been had been active. And here he's doing what Ruveni did. There are other examples too, but I think that uh, Ruveni is uh, quintessentially a messianic figure. And uh, he was embraced as, as that. And I don't think we have to take too seriously the fact that he's uh, officially denying that he's the Messiah. I think it, uh, the, the contrast that shows how, how genuine he is, only a true Messiah would deny, uh, at least initially, that he's the Messiah. Okay, so let's start off. Let's discuss uh, the diary. So first of all, in the mm -hmm. book, I'll just say there's the maps, as you say, the world of David Ravani. Yes. And then there is uh, an introduction Mm -hmm. 20, 20 or so pages. Now, it starts off in Africa. He gives yes. us, so let's talk about it. He's in Africa. He says, what's he doing there? 
what does he say? He's kind of descri- he, he's disguised as a Muslim for some reason. Yes. Or again, I, actually, before we jump into this, you know what? Okay. I'm going to take another track. I'm going to get back to this question in a second. But the accuracy of this, I said before, it reads like fiction in places. Because as we have discussed right in the beginning, how accurate is this thing or not? Obviously, it's somebody's own text or that he wrote. So, and we can talk more about that later. Did he really write it, or he mentioned those? But how accurate is this, and how much can we say? Oh, this is made up. This is not accurate. This is kind of fiction. So, I think the first thing about the the African section is that it serves his larger purpose. That. A Messiah is supposed to draw in all the Jews from all the corners of the world uh, to which they've been dispersed. So, of course, he has to be in Africa. He's showing his 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 credibility that way. He meets with members of the lost tribes who are located in Africa. Yes, some of them are located with him in Arabia, but some are also are also in 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 in, in Africa. So it serves his purpose really well. Um, how do we know whether he went there? Uh, unlike the European sections of the diary, which are corroborated with external sources. So, you know, Ruveni says he went to the Pope and we have papal documents saying that he went to the Pope. We don't have corroborating evidence uh, 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 of, of him in Africa. And we actually have very little written evidence uh, for this particular region of, of Africa in this in this period. So it's not surprising that we don't have that, that evidence. People look at, at uh, the list of places that he visited and some people say, that this is knowledge that he couldn't have culled from existing works of geography, that he must have been there or been in contact with someone who, who was there. There are a number of historians who take that position. But there's also a sense with this African section that he's trying to please a European audience that wants these exotic tales of, of, of Africa. And you see that, that, that there. They want to see cannibals. So, you know, he, he gives you he gives you cannibals, right? Yeah, that's what I say. He throws in the cannibals. He throws in yeah. these exotic elements, and he's running around. He's disguised. Why is he dis- okay? So, so you discuss the accuracy. I, I don't want to get go off on that. I just wanted to address that up front. That mm-hmm. there are definitely parts, and we can discuss that throughout as we yes. go through the sections. There are parts that are verifiable from outside sources that we know these things happened or these. Mm-hmm. He's describing a place. We know that description is accurate. So, whether some of it is made up, yeah, of course, could be, mm-hmm. but some of it we know for sure. Okay, so he's in Africa. He's discussing. The uh, the um, where he says the the, the tribes. I want to say uh, par- okay, parts of it where he just. I'll just say the cannibal is they eat elephants, wolves, leopards, dogs, camels, scorpions, frogs, and snakes. Also, eat human flesh and this other kind of exotic descriptions. What you would imagine somebody would yeah. envision such tribes. He goes through. He's trying to please his readers like a lot of travel writers. The second question you mentioned is why is he dressed as a why is he dressed as a Muslim? I think one of the interesting things about this diary is Ruveni never tells us why he does things. He just tells us what he does uh, in a very mundane way. You know, he even gives us his expenses. Um, but why is he why is he dressed as a Muslim? My view is that uh, he's his the, the fundamental part of his mission involves negotiating with with non-Jewish rulers, with Christian rulers, with Muslim rulers. And I think that he thinks that in the Muslim world, his best shot at getting access to uh, to those people in power is by being a Muslim. Uh, so that's why he's 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 dressed as a Muslim there. In the Christian world, he reads the political uh, situation differently, and he thinks that he can do better as a Jewish ally of those Christian kingdoms. There's another part to this too, that uh, 
after Africa, still dressed as a Muslim, he goes to Egypt and to the Holy Land. And there he wants to he wants to go into Dome of the Rock. He wants to see Harabayit, right? And uh, the best way to get access to those places is to be dressed as as as, as a Muslim. It would be much more difficult for a Jew in that time to uh, to 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 do that. So I think there's a practical aspect to it as well. So. Is he undoubtedly a Jew then? I mean, he's, it's interesting just because I asked that, just because he, he portrays himself as a Muslim, and this is how he says many. Well, I guess what we know of him historically from other answers, he definitely was Jewish. We're just asking based on how he describes himself. So we know nothing about him, but I, f- I feel that, 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 that someone who is, you know, who speaks Hebrew, however well he, he, he speaks it, is so imbued with Jewish culture, is unlikely to be a non-Jew in this, in this period. Okay, now he goes to Egypt, or again, purportedly, we'll mm-hmm. say, and he gives this description where he's swindled out of a lot of money, yes. as he says. Now, you could say the story about what kind of what happens here, but this is something that either it happened or it didn't happen, but why is the ambassador, the general of these armies showing up as a pauper? So he obviously has to give over this kind mm-hmm. of story, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. I, I think yes, you're you're absolutely right. But this is this is this is forming an alibi that uh, if you're going to show up in Venice, and we have descriptions of all of the ambassadors who 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 show up in Venice, um, your credibility or your riches that uh, they're giving expensive gifts, they've got a whole entourage, they've got servants, they're impressive. That's what allows them to enter into these kinds of uh, diplomatic negotiations. And he's he's showing up with nothing, uh, so he has to. Uh, he has to um, uh, explain why he has come without, with how, how despite being from this rich Jewish kingdom, he's come with nothing. Uh, and he also has to uh, demonstrate his credibility. And he does that by being extremely pious. Now, in the book, you'll hear a lot about the wild parties that seem to go on at his, at his house and the gifts, the lavish gifts he gives people. But he is always fasting. He is always praying. He's living this life of an of, of, of an ascetic. His piety is the is the witness to his credibility because he doesn't have the wealth to uh, to do what other ambassadors are doing. Okay, so I mean, and there's a story where he has this uh, mm-hmm. rich uh, Egyptian steals all his money. He says yeah. and they, the guy gives leaves the chest chest of jewels, diamonds, whatever's in it, and then he comes mm-hmm. back, it's gone. He says, "Look, yeah. he stole everything from me. He's a crook." That's kind of how he says it. So he ends up, he goes, he goes to Eretz Yisrael, as you mentioned. Interestingly, he says he goes to Maras Ochpela, and he says he gives a whole very interesting uh, depiction over there. So that, to me, looks genuine. Um, and and that's we again, we don't have uh, any outside sources corroborating his 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 visit anywhere other than to Europe. Uh, but his description description of Marata Machpela is. Uh, Looks very genuine. I mean, it's 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 the 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 way people describe that that building. Um, yeah, yeah. He kind of goes through that, and he goes as you mentioned already. He goes to Yerushalayim. He goes to. He says as you you know, I'll read, I'll read some of the subheaders here in the chapters as you put him in a sign at the temple in Jerusalem. So he goes over there. Says he gets he gets a sign. And is that a messianic thing that he when he talks about? If you want to mention that, then he says he gets a sign there. Uh, so, so absolutely. I, I, I don't think that that sign is required of of, of other messiahs, but uh, that's part of his credibility right? that, that 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 he's receiving these this divine guidance there. Yeah. Um, okay. So then he ends up 
Okay, he goes back, he travels to Alexandria, he goes to Venice, he ends up in Italy. Let's talk about Italy. That's where we know of him from outside sources. He shows up in Venice. We already said his description. Uh, what happens in Venice? When does he get to the Pope? What goes on in Italy? Okay. Uh, so his main his main purpose is is to get to the is to get to the Pope. And uh, we're looking at a situation in which, you know, if you were a betting man in the in the 16th century, you would bet on uh a Muslim victory, an Ottoman victory over, over Christians. And both the Christian and the Muslim side are primed for war. And people think that this great confrontation between Muslims and Christians is, is going to happen. And it's a time of you know epoch-changing events. There's been the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in 1453, uh, 14, 1492, Spain is is purged of uh, of 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 Christianity and of of of, of Judaism and and and, and, and Islam. Uh, people think that they're in apocalyptic times and a conflict is a conflict is coming. And Christians are looking for allies. So um, part of the way I explain Ruveni's uh, appeal, I think, can be illustrated by looking into the Christopher Columbus story. How does Christopher Columbus uh, justify his voyage to Ferdinand and Isabella? He is looking for the Grand Khan, who is this uh, ruler who is not Christian, but is friendly to, uh, to, to, to Christians and doesn't like Muslims, who can ally himself with the Christians and assure their victory over, over, over Muslims. That's how Christopher Columbus justifies uh, his, his trip. And here Ruveni shows up and he says, you guys got the basic idea of the Grand Khan right, except this Grand Khan is Jewish that uh, this mysterious non-Christian helper is actually a Jew in, 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 in Arabia. So it's within the realm of possibility for a lot of, uh, for, for these Christian courts, for the, for the Pope, for, 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 for example. Um, and uh, go ahead. No, keep going. And he gets, gets to the Pope. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um so he's uh, so 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 the Pope is 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 prepared in that way for uh, a figure for a figure like Ruveni. Uh, other things have have happened too. Uh, Cortez has got back from Mexico, where he has just discovered the you know so-called barbaric Aztec culture. But the Aztecs are sophisticated. They're not like the other barbarians that Christians have seen. They've built these amazing cities. They have sophisticated armies, and so the idea that Ruveni. Has uh, has this army of Jewish barbarians in Arabia who are uh, sophisticated and militarily strong is not insane, and it's a realm. It sounds crazy to us that there would be this massive Jewish kingdom next to next next to Mecca, but this is an era in which all kinds of geographical truths are being overturned. People did not imagine the existence of an extra continent of 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 the New World, and they've just discovered that that exists. Uh, so Ravani is playing on all of these kinds of geographical uncertainties and wishes and hopes of all of these uh, Christians in the courts of Europe, and he goes to the Pope. And uh, how do you get an audience with the Pope? It's very very difficult, but he finds a way. There's this cardinal called Egidio di Viterbo. And Egidio di Viterbo is uh, what we would call a Christian Hebraist. He, is, uh, he, he doesn't like the Jews, but he thinks that the Kabbalah is a repository of truth, and he wants to get that truth from its impious Jewish guardi guardians. 
so he's hired rabbis uh, to teach him Hebrew, to teach him to teach him the Kabbalah, and Ruveni comes along, and uh, Ruveni seems to uh, to offer to Egidio this pathway, this this opportunity to play a part in the end of the world, in in these apocalyptic in these apocalyptic events. So he speaks to Egidio de Viterbo. Uh, who is very impressed by him, maybe even understands some of Ruveni's Hebrew. He'd studied Hebrew for a long time before he met uh, met Ruveni. And that's what gives Ruveni uh, the, the audience of the Pope. So he meets the Pope and Ruveni showers uh, showers the Pope with, 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 with praise. He says, and this is this very weird phrase, he says to the Pope, Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. I don't know whether you, you you noticed that that phrase, but he's taking it right out of the passage with Yaakov and Esau. Uh, he says, "Alken ra'iti panecha kirot penei Elohim vatirtseni." So Yaakov uh, is about to meet Esau. He's worried that Esau is going to uh, is going to overwhelm him. So he has all of these strategies to bring his family gradually in 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 in, in front of Aesop, and he says to Aesop, "Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God." So it's a a very backhanded comment. It's exactly the kind of the comment that Yaakov gives 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 Aesop. So we know where Ravani is 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 standing, and um, uh, the Pope is flattered by Ravani, but in the end. He says he sort of believes his story. He sort of doesn't believe his story. And he gives him a letter of recommendation to go to the king of Portugal. And the king of Portugal, uh, Portugal at the time, is this massive uh, naval power, one of the greatest uh, Christian naval powers of the period. And he says uh, to Ravani, uh, this king of Portugal is going to be able to help you out better than better than I can. So the visit is a failure, but he does leave with these letters of support from the from the from the Pope. Okay, so first of all, Cardinal Guido di Viterbo, I think uh, Leo Bacher uh, was the one. Yes. Uh, Elijah Levita, he was the one who was used taught him. Now, also in Rome at this time is the Svarno, Ravaggio Svarno, famous yes. commentator, and he gets thrown in jail, I believe, right from because of Ruveni. Ruveni thinks that they're out to get him, and he gets him to be thrown in jail. I think. Uh, I, I actually think I don't remember if it was on the podcast. I think that I had a, lo- a while ago. Listeners may remember who I, I interviewed uh, Mash Kravis, who's done a lot of work on Sforno, and he says there's an allusion to Ruveni in Sforno's commentary somewhere in Nak. I'm not remembering where he's, he doesn't call him, say him by name, but there is an allusion to him and this mm-hmm. uh, this incident. Uh, I can find that exactly. I think we was on that podcast episode. But anyway. Uh, so the one thing I should say is that uh, uh, Ruveni says uh, Ovadi Sforno was thrown in jail. We we, we don't have uh, evidence, unfortunately, from other sources. I searched quite hard for that and couldn't couldn't find it, which doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that uh, we only have Ruveni's word for, word for it. Okay. I, I, yeah, I don't recall. I can ask uh, Kravitz if yeah. what exactly happened there. Now, that being said, um, what what were the Jews, the general Jews, and Ravaggio Sforno, the Rabbanim, the rabbis, what were their opinion of Ruveni? He shows up in Venice, he's in Rome, he's going through Italy, Italian Jewish communities. What is their impression of him? Uh, so that's, that's, um, uh, that's an interesting, that, 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 that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Um, so first of all, there are all kinds of, um, uh, rabbis who are writing about what's going to happen in messianic end times. And uh, 
we look at at, at, at a Barvanel, and uh, a Barvanel is talking about uh, how the times of, of of the Mashiach are going to be precipitated by this huge conflict between Christians and 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 Muslims. And uh, there are all kinds of Kabbalists like Yochanan Alamano, and they're going through all of these geographical works for hints as to how these battles are exactly going to happen. Uh, and among the most important information is where these lost tribes are located. Uh, so there's this there, there's this atmosphere where people are actively trying to predict the end of the 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 end of days, given what they know of the politics of the period, and given what they know. Of 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 the geography, and uh, uh, and um, uh, Abraham ben Eliezer Halevi writes about how this last battle is going to be in Jeddah, and uh, uh, what's going to happen? The uh, Muslims are going to lure the Portuguese into in, in into Jeddah, where they think they're going to be able to uh, go from there to conquering Mecca. And the whole force is going to, the whole Christian force is going to be slaughtered. And why is it going to happen there? Because Jeddah, says uh, says Halevi, is in fact from the word God. So these are people who affiliate themselves with the tribe of the tribe of God. And, and Ruvaini, I think, seems to be familiar with all of these, these kinds of legends. When he asks for weapons, he asks for them to be, uh, to, to be sent to this port of, of, of Jeddah. And what exactly is his plan? It seems like um, uh, it's a, a Halevi type plan, where uh, Avram Ben is a Halevi type plan, where uh, he is going to. Uh, it's going to involve a battle between Muslims and Christians, and Muslims are probably going to win. Um, so that's the story that Ruvaini tells, and uh, people have been hearing various versions about of that story, whether they're reading a Barvanel or whether they're reading Alamano or some or, or, or somewhere else. And uh, they, at least some of them, seem to accept his message. Okay, so Abarbanel is his, his uh, trilogy. He has Mayania Yeshua, Yeshua's Meshichai. Yeah, and I'm forgetting the last one. Short is where, exactly where uh, where he talks about uh, the Ottoman ruler. He actually calls him Mashiach, right? In 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 some sense. Yeah, so that that's uh, that. Or Yochanan Romano, as you mentioned, famous uh, capitalist mm-hmm. in Italy at the time. Um, okay, so Jeddah is a city, um, so a port city in Saudi Arabia near Mecca, and that's Still where that's. There that's today. Yeah, and that's where he wants to get these weapons mm-hmm. for his army to go fight. Okay, so uh, now first of all, I don't know if you mentioned, so he has uh, specific supporters for sure, uh, does Ruveni. Uh, the Dapisa family, da- Daniel Dapisa, I mean, there's uh, mm-hmm. a couple other famous ones. So they come, they're supporting him monetarily. How, what, how does, what happens there? Uh, yes, so um, the main family is this, is this Dapisa family. And uh, they're a family of bankers. They're the super wealthy elite of, 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 of the period. Uh, they've already, when Ruveni uh, meets them, have devoted a huge amount of their income to helping all of these uh, Jews from Spain and Portugal who are trying to, uh, trying to find homes after having been, having been expelled. And uh, I think here, I think Ruveni's story is really important for understanding the history of the period. We have this view of Sephardic Jews, they're driven out of Spain, and suddenly they go to the Ottoman Empire, and uh, they have a beautiful Sephardic civilization. That is true. 
But at the end of the story is happy. But in this early period in the 16th century, it is not at all clear that things are going to work out that work work out that way. Uh, there are all kinds of powers uh, hinting at further expulsions of the Jews from Italy, from Europe, from else from from elsewhere, and. Uh, the people who are interested in Ruveni's solution are worried about those kinds of uncertainties, and the Depizas are among them. So the Depizas are wealthy. Uh, Daniel Depiza, his first major supporter, is the de facto head of the Jews of, of, of Rome. Uh, he uh, negotiates with the Pope on behalf of the Jew Jews. He's this kind of Stadlan. Uh, he authors these Takanot. Uh, for the city of Rome to kind of create this balance between the older Italian Jewish families and the newer families that have, have moved to Rome. This is a major, major uh, Jewish political figure. They're also immensely learned. Uh, so um, uh, Daniel de Pisa is, is learned, but even more so is uh, is his cousin, Yechiel, who we meet later in, 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 in the diary, who actually retires from, um, uh, from uh, his life as a banker and devotes himself to the study of 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 uh, of, of, of the Kabbalah, and um, I don't know. Maybe I can I can just briefly say things about 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 uh, his 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 books. He has a book uh, called I think Chaye Olam, which is uh, about uh, banking, about uh, uh, about taking interest in 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 this period. Something as a banker, he knows a lot about. And uh, he also uh, writes some Kabbalistic, work, Kabbalistic works. He writes Minchat uh, Knaot, uh, which is uh, this, um, uh, the Rashba wrote uh, a ban, a, a work uh, banning people from studying philosophy and natural sciences before the age of 25. And uh, that was uh, refuted by Adaya Bedersi. And, and Yechiel uh, uh, de Pisa writes a work coming in on the side of Rashba, coming in on the side of, of that skepticism towards uh, Aristotelian uh, philosophy. So these are very learned Jews who are also wealthy, well-placed, and politically savvy. Okay. Uh, as well as there's a lot of, you know, again, it's a fun read if mm -hmm. to read the diary. I think it's a really, really good read. But he talks about his illness, he's in someone's mm -hmm. house, he moves from one house to the yes. next house, he has a new residence, he has an old one, and he goes through a lot of details. And then he gets up to, he gets, you know, he mentions the Neil de Pisa, he gets to meet with the Pope, he has one meeting with the Pope, who meet with the Popes. And then he starts, you know, he mentions those who are against him, like we already mentioned, going to jail, getting the Rabbanim into jail in Rome. Uh, there's there's a couple of other things going on at this time. Uh, just interestingly, before we go a little more, I want to, what was Ruveni's opinion of Italian Jewry? What was his opinion of them? So he was very impressed. And, uh, he he, uh, he contrasts them with the Jews of the Muslim world, and he says that uh, the Jews of the Muslim world are weak and completely uh, unfit to uh, to uh, uh, serve in an army. But the Italian Jews are are valiant and 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 have those skills, and they can be his his fighting fighting force. Now, why does he come to this negative positive assessment of 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 Italian Jews and negative assessment of Jews of the Muslim world? Uh, especially as I think he has more of an insight into the Jews of the Muslim world just by virtue of speaking Arabic. Uh, I think that things are relatively stable for Ottoman Jews in this period. That uh, when he goes to Egypt, uh, the Jews there don't give him the time of day. They see him as a troublemaker. Uh, they want to, they want to see him leave as soon as possible. They 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 don't even offer him hospitality for the most part. A little bit when he gets to the Holy Land. Uh, but in Italy. 
uh, there's uh, there the, these Jews are are seeing the um, the exiles from Spain and Portugal firsthand. Uh, Charles V has a great reputation with the Jews in the end. People people see him as a great savior of the Jews. But in these early lands, the early early years in the 1520s and 1530s, he's uh, contemplating a whole range of um, you know, the, the, the possibility of expelling Jews from from all of his realms. And he he is the ruler of the largest empire that's been in the world for centuries. So Jews are 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 terrified. And they're willing to look to riskier solutions like the ones that David Ruvaini is offering. Uh, so I think that's the reason for his disparity. More satisfied, more stable uh, Jews of the Muslim world, uh, less uh, less uh, Jews living in less, less a less politically stable environment in the, in the Christian world. Now, as we already mentioned, Ruvaini decides he's going to Portugal. He gets a letter from mm -hmm. the Pope to the King of Portugal. But at this time, we encounter, I guess, in the diary, his arch arch enemy, arch nemesis, uh, yes. Dom Miguel. So what was he, what happens with him? And yeah, he, you know, Ravini doesn't have very nice things to say about him. Yes. So there's this there's this uh, statesman, Dom uh, Dom Dom Miguel, and uh, he is uh, when Ravini first meets him, he is the Portuguese the Portuguese king's ambassador to 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 Rome. Uh, he's also a bishop. And I think uh, Don Miguel sees right through Rubeni. He thinks that he's a he thinks that he's a fraud. He advises the Portuguese king uh, to send him on his way as as fast as possible. He sees that uh, Rubeni is revered as this kind of messianic figure by all the conversos. He's uh, these Jews have recently been been forcibly converted to Christianity. Uh, he thinks that Rubeni is is going to endanger their 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 fry what he sees as their fragile Christianity, and he wants Rubeni out. Now, uh, Rubeni views Don Miguel as uh, an incredibly evil figure, but from all the other sources that we have about Don Miguel, uh, he's uh, he's known as a Machiavellian statesman. That he will, uh, some people even think, think that uh, Machiavelli drew inspiration from him or from people people very like him, and uh, he's serving the king, and that means that he's against Ruvaini. But later in life, when his relations with uh, the king of Portugal break down and he's exiled and he has to return back to Rome, he ends up uh, advocating for conversos in Rome. So he's uh, very much on their on their side towards the end of his uh, towards the end of his life. Yeah, so you mentioned Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli, the Florentine statesman from Florence mm -hmm. at this uh, time period, really. Yes. Uh, okay, so, but but he really meets, so he meets Don Miguel in Italy, and he, you know, there's a lot related to the book. He gets stuck, he's stuck here, he's stuck there, everything starts mm -hmm. slipping around, and he, you know, he's kind mm -hmm. of relaying all these details, some more interesting than others. Yep. Uh, people that are interested in him, he starts mentioning his servants. I, I want to talk a little bit about the servants, actually. I was going to ask this later, but I said, now, I, a lot of, throughout the book, you translate a lot of, it's like servants, but I mean, what was the Hebrew translation? And his servants kind of accurate, or is it more like were they like his helpers, his employees? What, is, is, what do you mean by servant, slave? What, what's could you kind of I guess talk about the translation aspect of that here and what that meant that he had these servants? So I, I think before I even get down to the nitty gritty of the translation, I'm going to say that uh, if you read this book, you're going to hear about a lot of problems that Ruvaini has with his servants. That takes up a huge amount of the book and the question is the question is why right and uh and 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 why does this guy feel that this is worthy or why does Rubaini think that this is worthy of record and i think this is what makes the diary in many ways so special 
it's a how-to guide for prospective messiahs. That if you're a prospective messiah and you need to get your team together, um, I think one of the paradoxes of messianism is that although you need to be very organized, it's an inherently destabilizing activity. And the kinds of people who are going to join a prospective messiah are going to be people on the very periphery of society with nothing to lose or with very little to lose. Uh, so in Ruveni's time, uh, Jews are banned uh, from being in Portugal. So the kind of Jew who would sign on to go to Portugal under conditions where Judaism is banned in Portugal is uh, is going to be a very unique kind of person. And uh, you're going to get criminals, you're going to get borderline criminals, you're going to get people who are you know out of luck, and uh, you're going to have to make do with the people that you've got. And that's what Ruveni's message is there. He's you know he's making do with his team. He knows the problems of his team. And he's saying to future people who are going to engage in this kind of work, that's what you're going to have to do. He also lists all of these expenses so that, you know, future uh, people engaged in this kind of activity in the future are, 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 are going to know what kind of budget they need. Right. It's, it's a very practical, practical guide. But in terms of servants, some of them are absolutely servants. Uh, so we have this uh, this uh, this passage in the uh, in the um, in, in, in the diary where. Uh, uh, the uh, where Ruveni's uh, servants are asking for his permission to leave, uh, to leave his service. They want to go back. And he says, you can leave, but I'm not going to give you my permission. So what's what's all that about? Uh, there were laws to protect employers in Italy, that if you had a servant who signed on for a year of service and wanted to, uh, to, to, to end early, he needed a letter from his employer. Otherwise, the next employer would pay a very heavy fine. So these were employ employer protection laws, not very good for the servants, but 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 good for the employers. So when 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 Ruveni is taught, it's a kind of indentured servitude almost, although these people are getting salaries. Uh, now those are clear servants; they're getting paid. Ruveni talks about how they're paid by Daniel de Pisa and and so on and so forth. Uh, there are servants when he still uses the word misharet in Hebrew who seem to be more on a volunteer basis. Uh, now he uses the exact same word, uh, misharet, and so I translated both as misharet, but you can see that he's using the, the word with uh, a slightly different nuance. There are also slaves in this book, and that, he, to describe a slave, he uses the word ebed. Occasion uh, for female slaves, he'll use, you know, shifcha or something or some, something like that, but those are slaves, and he... He will never call a slave a misharet. He's, he distinguishes between those those terms. But he does have people who seem to be more more volunteers, uh, more part of an entourage. Uh, but he uses the same word, so I was I was stuck with that as a translator, and I left it that way. Okay, just wanted to do point that out in the translation once we're hearing the story. So as you say, there are many instances of fighting and bickering and major issues that he has from his servants. It causes him a lot of sorrows really mm -hmm. uh, throughout. We can get, get involved a little bit more. So he comes to Portugal. And as you mentioned, Portugal is this massive power at the time. Mm -hmm. And he comes there to King Zhao the Third, John the Third, we'll say yep. call him John. Uh, and yep. he, you know, how does he get to the king? Uh, and what does he, you know, he's trying to convince the king to, to, to give him these weapons, as we said, right? Yeah. So he come. What does he come with? It the, the whole the whole business is coming to people for him is coming to people with the right letters, and uh, he uh, he uh, he has his letter from his brother, who's the king of of Arabia, 
And when he comes to Portugal, he's got a letter from the Pope. And uh, we can actually read the letter from, from, the, from, the, from the Pope that's preserved in the Vatican, in the Vatican archives. And uh, what does it say? It says, this is the, the Pope says, this is the story uh, that uh, Ruveni tells that he's uh, from this Jewish kingdom that doesn't really, doesn't like its Muslim neighbors and he's prepared to ally himself with, with Christians. And uh, sometimes the Pope says, you know, uh, the enemy of my, of my enemy is my friend. And, and, and sometimes we can be helped by people, by Jews who are our enemies. So the Pope is, is, is um, it's, it's faint praise for Rubini in, 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 in this letter. And he also says, I can't verify his story, but it seems plausible. He says, you'll be able to, he says to the king of Portugal, you'll be able to better verify uh, Ruveni's, Ruveni's story. So that's how he gets access to the king of Portugal. Why does the king of Portugal want help from Ruveni? Because the big issue at the time is the Red Sea, that they want control over the Red Sea and the Ottomans uh, have effective control over, over it. So the whole business with Prester John, with uh, the Portuguese trying to find an alliance with the, the king of Abyssinia, is about control of the Red Sea, because uh, Abyssinia has access to the Red Sea. And the Portuguese, who are this massive naval power, think that they can uh, they can, uh, they can can get control over, over the Syria. Now, why do they want control? Uh, for some concrete reasons, that it makes trade with the eastern parts of their empire very much easier. The Portuguese have... Uh, have uh, colonies in India and uh, uh, being able to ship uh, uh, items from India back to Portugal through the Red Sea area would be very convenient for them. They also have apocalyptic reasons for doing it, that uh, we have all of these apocalyptic texts which describe how in the end times uh, the Christian ruler, the king of Portugal, will be able to conquer Mecca. And if you're going to conquer Mecca, you getting getting to Mecca through the Red Sea is very, uh, is, is, is very helpful. So that's uh, that's the carrot for the Ruveni's carrot for the for the king of the king of Portugal. Um, eventually, uh, the king of Portugal thinks it's not worth it. I don't know whether I've got, I should get, get get to that point yet. How he gets chased out of uh, Portugal? Yeah, we we should get we'll get there in a minute. I, I just okay. want to say you know the Don Miguel shows up again and he tells him mm-hmm. don't pay attention and then he speaks to an interpreter in Arabic, not in yeah. Hebrew. And then it's actually very, he says, when he began speaking Arabic, I told the king in the holy tongue, I do not want to speak with this Ishmaelite because Ishmaelites are my enemy. He calls me Shalem. I can tell from the way this official speaks that he is mother and father Ishmaelites. And then he says, well, my father, my mother, and I are Christians, not Ishmaelites. He said he was greatly afraid and trembled before the king. And then Don Miguel spoke out again. And it's like, bag and for it. And he's like, no. And it's great. And he said he rejoiced. The king said he liked me. It's, it's, it's like a very mm-hmm. interesting, intriguing back and forth. It's really just to throw it out there. So, yeah, first of all, a couple of things happened. There's Ravini's trouble. Uh, he has that uh, his slaves, again, are running around. They're selling their clothing. They're fighting in the streets. And then they bring in a, a maidservant. And there's yes. kind of issues there with one of the slaves and her. And there's all sorts of, you mm-hmm. know, it's all, he relays everything in here. There's all sorts of things going on with the slaves. So he has real problems from the slaves. And then he yeah. has the whole the problem from the conversos, the crypto Jews, Moranos. Uh, he has an issue with them, and Shlomo Molcho, listeners may be familiar, if not, I can listen to my podcast episode with Mati Ben Melech about Molcho, but Shlomo Molcho comes into the story. So let's, I'll, I'll give it to you to talk about all that. Uh, great. So he he, he he goes to Portugal, 
uh, as you said, he has really colorful problems with 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 all of his servants, and uh, that's part of that's part of the messianic mission that you're going to have to deal with these unreliable or unreliable people because you have no alternatives. Uh, he also is dealing with a whole bunch of Moroccan Jews. Now, this may sound strange uh, because what a Moroccan Jew is doing in uh, in Portugal, they shouldn't be there. Judaism is illegal. Well, Portugal has all of these colonies on the North African coast, and those colonies depend on uh, uh, it's uh, on the on Moroccan Jews who are who allow the Portuguese to negotiate with with native populations. So some of those Jews uh, have to go on diplomatic missions back to Portugal, and there they meet Ruveni. Uh, and they also cause uh, cause various various difficulties for Ruveni. And finally, there's this uh, there's there's this um, converso, this uh, son of. Uh, Christians uh, of Jews forcibly converted to Christianity, uh, names Diogo Pires, and uh, uh, Diogo Pires is very influenced by Ruveni, and he has a dream uh, which he thinks is urging him to convert to uh, to 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 Judaism to circumcise himself, and he goes to Ruveni and he says, "Circumcise me." And uh, we have this account, a very similar account from Molcho, from uh, Diogo Perez, who changes his name to Shlomo Molcho. We have the same account from Ruveni, so we assume that, it, that a very similar account from Ruveni, so we assume that it happened. And Ruveni says, "Not on my watch. Uh, if you convert, you're you're uh, this. Uh, if you convert, you're an employee employee of of the uh, of the of of the king. You're in fact on the Supreme Court. He doesn't say that, but that's what Shlomo Molcho is. And he says." Uh, It'll bring my diplomatic mission to an end. Uh, I can't be seen as 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 converting the conversos back to Judaism. And uh, so he tells Molcho to go as far as he wave as he can from 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 Portugal and do whatever he has to do has to has to do there. Uh, but nonetheless, the incident Molcho circumcises himself. He flees Portugal, and everyone blames Ruveni for this series of of events. And it's one of the major factors which. Uh, led to Ruveni uh, being driven out of Portugal. Yeah, and this is part of what Don Miguel is telling the king. He's saying, listen, he's converting these conversos back to Judaism. And then this happens to Shlomo Malchum, and he says, you see, it's exactly what happened. I mean, was Ruveni actually going and talking to other conversos? Was he trying to, recon- to, to get them to come back to Judaism? Or we just don't know. So his uh, so his his descriptions of Portugal seem to indicate that that was the case. He seems to have turned his house, his diplomatic residence, into a kind of a synagogue. Um, that uh, we see all of these uh, conversos coming to him, kissing his hand. There are allegations that he's reading Jewish books with them, whether he is or or or, or he isn't. Um, and uh, uh, people are seeing. Uh, how for at least some conversos, not all, for at least some conversos, their their uh, attachment to Christianity is very very superficial, right? And and Ruveni is bringing that into the uh, bringing that out, uh, letting people let, letting letting the public see that. Okay, now at this point he's in Portugal. I want to make sure I emphasize, uh, bring out this yes. story. It's on page one hundred and one in the book where he talks about he gets an emissary from the Muslim lands contact him. And they ask him about his land, and he gives a description of his land and the purported. He talks about that Sarah Sashvatim. It's really interesting. And I want to say he says, as you already mentioned, three hundred thousand Jews flourish under the role of his brother, King Joseph. He has seventy elders, Shimon Zakhenim, and officials. He's the commander of the army, and he goes. He explains the whole thing that they wanted. They want to go conquer Jerusalem, and uh, he says where how they're in the desert, 
and the troops Ruben God Menashe, and he talks about the land of Cush, there are nine and a half tribes who also ruled by kings. The two tribes that dwell close to us are Shimon and Binyamin. He says they live on the Nile. I mean, if you want to talk about more of this, he goes through he starts giving a lot of names and he goes through a lot of it. Uh, it's very interesting how he really kind of uh, this is where he kind of talks about them. Because this is I think this is the the description that he gives in the diary, right? Yes. Um so I think that's why he's he's uh, he's so persuasive to to Jews that he is drawing on existing discussions of uh, of the lost tribes, and uh, he knows exactly what to what what to say to it to 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 a Jewish audience, and um, I think that um, Ruveni uh, presents himself as this lost tribesman who is uh, who is a warrior, who is black, who is strong. Who uh, could conceivably fight in those end of time uh, end of time battles, and uh, and he's got the uh, these kinds of details to to prove it. So I think that's that's really at the core of why he gets the Jewish supporters that 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 he gets. Now, first of all, here he tells them they told him the Jews of Fez and its environs and even the Ishmaelites say you are the prophet or the Messiah, and he says. Yeah. He says, but God forbid, I'm a greater sinner before God than any one of them killed many people. In a single day, I once killed 40 enemies. Because I'm not a sage or a capitalist, neither am I a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I'm merely an army commander. Now, this is interesting. Then he says, I am the son of King Solomon of the line of David, son of Jesse. So, that of Ishai, which is not from the Sarah And my brother is King Joseph, rules over 300,000 people of Haber. So, why, why is he claiming that he's from the Davidic line, from King from, from David Amalek? Is that because... That's what has to be to be Mashiach. Why is he, even though it should be Asar Sashvatim, right? So, uh, so I, th- I think that, I think, I think what he's doing is that you have, especially he's talking a lot to conversos. And uh, conversos are an interesting population. There, there are some of them who, who convert to Christianity and, and they're, and they're good Christians. You know, they, 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 they're faithful to their, their new religion. And uh, they're, some who who observe Judaism in secret, and then there are also conversos who who have hybrids, and uh, and what you're seeing is a response to trauma. That these are the, especially in Portugal, that in 1497, they forcibly converted the entire uh, Portuguese Portuguese Jewish community, and different Jews related to the to 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 to, to that trauma and this kind of new world in, in in different ways. But I think that it's also reflected in the fact that they're willing to entertain vastly different uh, versions. Of what Mashiach is supposed to do. Um, now they're very, they're all they're many of them are highly messianic. I think everyone is messianic, Jews and non-Jews in the, in, the, in this period. But bear in mind what's happened to them. Uh, they've been forcibly converted to Christianity, which is a religion which focuses uh, a lot on the Messiah. So it's natural that conversos want to figure out those who are interested in Judaism among them want to figure out what the Jewish attitude. Uh, to the Messiah is. And uh, secondly, one thing that Christianity does in this period uh, is uh, what is a witness to its truth? The fact that it's powerful. What is a witness to the uh, the fact that Jews are, are are wrong? The fact that they're powerless. So when Ruveni is 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 out there and showing that the, the, there's there's a possibility for Jewish power, that there's a possibility that uh, that 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 that's um, that that Judaism can be correct and can gain the upper hand. That's very very persuasive, 
And I think that he's he's just playing into those different different scenarios. He's by being the, by being vague. He's uh, he's he's allowing different people to project whatever they want onto his whatever messianic scenarios in their mind they have onto his mission. Right. One more interesting thing about this: he also describes a little further on mm-hmm. that nine and a half other tribes live in the land of the blacks in four regions yes. of Cush. The tribes of the tribe of Moses or the Bnei Moshe lives in a different area beyond the Sabbatian River. So yes. there's a lot of different when you read a lot of the stuff that says Shvatim, you see different ways, different things. So he's going with that that they live here, and but the Bnei Moshe are the ones on the other side of the Sabbatian. That's how he's portraying things. Yeah. Okay, so you know there's a lot going on. There's the king, and then he's back and forth. The king, Don Miguel. But anyway, let's jump ahead. There's there's Again, a lot of description for those that read read it, right? You can read the diary and see all that's going on, the back and forth. A lot happens in Portugal. But with Molchol and the Conversos, you know, you mentioned you, what happens. What's, what's the end of Portugal? And he kind of gets kicked out of Portugal. Um, so the end is that the king gets uh, the king gets very angry. And uh, he see he he. Uh, he thinks that uh, he's turning, he's returning conversos to Judaism, and he ends diplomatic relations. And um, uh, uh, Ruveni doesn't get his get, doesn't get his ships, and he has to make his way out of uh, out of out, out of Portugal. Now he's very fortunate that uh, he does leave with a letter from the king. It's not the letter he hoped for, but at least he can get out of the out of the country uh, safely. Um, he uh, he leaves and then he is driven into Spain, and Spain at that time is uh, under the rule of Charles V, who is the Holy Roman Emperor. And I mentioned this before. Uh, this is uh, the largest empire that's existed for centuries. Uh, the line about this empire is it's the empire upon which the sun never sets, because Charles V has territories uh, both in the New World and in the old world. So the sun's always shining somewhere in his in in, in, in his empire. And uh, of course, in Spain, uh, Judaism has been banned since 1492. Ruveni turns up and he's immediately arrested. And uh, he is eventually set free uh, once uh, with the specific um, uh, permission of, 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 of Charles V, uh, he's captured. He's captured again. Then he's released, and that's where the diary the diary ends. Okay. And at the end of the diary, there is kind of an addendum, an appendix by Solomon Cohen, yes. Cohen, who's who's his friend. So, what is this about? How did is it? How did this get here? What is this? Okay. So the so so Ruveni shows up in in just to get get the get the sequence. He shows up in in Venice in fifteen twenty four. He stays there. A, 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 a year he leaves from Portugal. He's there for about a year, from about fifteen twenty-five, uh, and uh, uh, then then he's then he's driven out of there. And then we don't hear anything really about Ruveni between from fifteen twenty-seven, really almost about to fifteen thirty. And the question is, is what is he doing? Now I'll tell you what I think he's doing. Uh, his main supporters are uh, people in Rome: Egidio di Viterbo, Daniel de Pisa, the Pope. And in 1527, uh, Charles V's mutinous troops sack Rome. And uh, this has disastrous consequences for everyone in Rome. Egidio de Viterbo's uh, library is destroyed. His house is destroyed. He leaves the city. The Pope himself has to leave the city for a year. It's in such bad repair. And the Jewish community is massacred. And uh, we have accounts that before it was this vibrant Jewish community. It's hard even to get a minion. 
uh, as a result. And uh, so none of his supporters can support him. And perhaps most tragically, Daniel de Pisa, the de facto head of the Jew of Rome, uh, Jews of Rome, and his main supporter dies in in that in that uh, sack of Rome. Uh, so he loses all the power that he that 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 he has. And uh, where is he? Well, this is the story that he tells: that uh, somehow he's in a ship uh, which gets shipwrecked off the coast of 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 um, uh, of uh, of France, and. He gets uh, arrested by the Lord of, of Clermont. Uh, we're not quite sure who this individual is, although I speculate as to who he might be. And Ruveni remains in prison for two years until he's uh, uh, until he's ransomed by the Jews of Avignon and, and Carpentras at considerable expense. And everything that he has, including his letters uh, from his brother, are confiscated and he never gets them back. Is that when he, he forges some letters, though, then? So this is the disastrous thing that happens after after the diary. Uh, so I mentioned before that uh, how does Rubeni get his audiences? It's with letters of recommendation from uh, highly placed people. And he's without his letter from his brother signed by the 70 members of the Sanhedrin of Arabia. And uh, he's a good Maimonidean messiah. Uh, he uh, has a Sanhedrin to support, to support him before he goes into his activities. So without that letter, uh, he loses his raison d'etre. So he goes to St. Jews in Mantua and he wants another letter forged. And here he gets sloppy. Uh, and uh, he wants 70 signatures. Uh, he wants 70 signatures on his new forged letter from his brother in, in Arabia. So he tries to recruit Jews to uh, to sign that letter. And his prestige at this point, it's the early 1530s, isn't what it was. And he gets maybe 20 Jews. Uh, to do it, and a lot of them are kids. And then he has to; he can't get enough, so he feels he has to erase the signatures. But the tri- the scribe won't rewrite the document, and uh, the rabbis of Mantua begin to get worried. They think that this is going to bring trouble to the Jews, uh, so they t- they they denounce him to the Marquis of of, of Mantua, and the Marquis uh, decides not to uh, immediately prosecute Ruveni. But he sends the he he mark he clearly marks the uh, this document that Ruveni has made as a forgery. He he gets the person who created it to hide something under the seal, and he sends Ruveni uh, back to back to Rome with this uh, clearly forged forged document. And that's when Ruveni's uh, fortune begins to begins to turn. I think that the other uh, thing that happens in Mantua is that we have. Uh, the first rabbinical letter against Rubeni. And this is by a rabbi called uh, Azriel ben Avraham, um, Azriel ben Shlomo Diana, uh, who uh, we, we, was a, a very eminent rabbi. We have uh, two uh, volumes of, of Shutim of, of, of his, and he describes this environment where uh, Rubeni is going from town to town and is using uh, each Jewish community as his personal piggy bank. Uh, and he says, "We've got to stop. This guy's a fraud, and uh, and 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 uh, and Jews should not pay any any attention to him." So this is the beginning of the turning of the tide uh, against Rubeni, both among Christians and among among Jews. Yeah, Bajel Diana. We have those two volumes, Shalos Shuvas, that were that were yeah. published. Uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. They published a manuscript. Yeah. I don't think they're really around anymore. I think it was mm-hmm. uh, Tel Aviv University Press. Could be. Um, yeah. So. 
what happens to Ravani at the end, the end of his life? Where does he end up? What happens? Um, so he goes, he, 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 he goes back to Venice and he meets up with uh, Shlomo Malcha. And uh, Shlomo Malcha at this point uh, has an immense, uh, has an immense, uh, has an immense following. Um, and uh, this, the Shlomo Malcha's life has been traced very nicely in a biography by Moti, Moti, Moti ben Melech. And uh, uh, Riveni, together with Molcho, who he initially he initially rejected back in Portugal, uh, go to meet Charles V in in Regensburg. And on the way, they seem to have passed through France, um, met the uh, met 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 the French king. Although nothing seems to have 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 uh, come of it. And uh, he goes to the court of of Charles V. And uh, one person at that court is the great Stadlan, Jossel of Rosheim. And uh, uh, Jossel of Rosheim has these detailed, uh, uh, it's almost like a diary or a historical record of events. And he's terrified uh, because uh, Jossel of Rosheim has, uh, Charles V has previously wanted to expel, expel, expel Jews. And uh, one of his reasons for expelling them is that he thinks the Jews are loyal to the Ottomans, not to the Christians. And here's Rubaini and Molcho with their uh, with their plans to foment war between Muslims and Christians, and he thinks things will work out really badly for for all the Jews of the town. So he says that in order to dissociate the Jews from Rubaini and Molcho, he actually leaves the town entirely when they when they when they arrive. And uh, Charles V meets with them and decides that they're uh, that they're uh, that, that 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 it's a fraud or it's not worth pursuing. And he hands them over to the Inquisition, and at that point they get they get separated. I, I won't follow uh, Molcho's trajectory because this is about Ruveni, but um, Ruveni gets prosecuted by the Inquisition. And on the one hand, this is very interesting because the Inquisition is supposed to only prosecute Christians. Um, so the, the 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 they're they're accusing Jews who have been converted to Christianity of being secret Jews of Judaizing. But Ruveni never, con- uh, never, never converted to Christianity. I think he's the only Jew, unconverted Jew, who was ever prosecuted by the the Inquisition. Although I could be, I could be wrong, and he's prosecuted uh, uh, under the only uh, possible uh, charge, and that's of preaching Judaism to Christians. By which they mean uh, his his relations with these conversos who he's who he's he's been he's been cultivating. Uh, and uh, so uh, the, he's convicted, and uh, they've shipped him to Spain. We're not quite sure why that happens, but there he, he is. And uh, the Inquisition never executes people itself; it relaxes them. That's the term to the Christian, the secular authorities. And he was burned at the stake in 1538. And that's really the end. And then we we have this diary now. So, what's the story of the diary? Where did the diary come from? The manuscript, I think I mentioned this, the manuscript is gone. There is no manuscript today, but yes. where was the manuscript from? What's the story of the diary? So it's so. a remarkable story. We know it's genuine. Um, it's uh, we. Uh, it, it's referred to uh, in some uh, Inquisition documents. There was a prospective converso professor of Hebrew at the University of Salamanca in the early 17th century. And when he was accused uh, of Judaizing, he mentioned that he read this this diary of of David Ruveni. So we know we know it's genuine. The next time we hear of the manuscript is in the 19th century. It shows up in this German book collector's uh, collection, and um, Leopold Zuntz, 
uh, got hold of it, the sort of uh, founder of, of uh, Wissenschaft des Judentums, modern modern Jewish studies, got hold of it, and he wrote a short notice of its of its of its contents in this article on um, on uh, European uh, on, on, on sorry on Jewish geographers because Ruveni was uh, was you know relevant in that in that in that field. The book collector dies. His uh, books get sold to the Bodleian Library, the library in the, the, the library in Oxford, and uh, at that point, this interest uh, the, the the diary interested some scholar, and he made a facsimile of the diary. And let me explain what a facsimile is. Uh, they didn't have photocopy machines back then, so he takes a piece of tracing paper and he takes a pen and he traces the outline of each letter. So it's not like transcribing it where you're writing it in your own hand. You actually have the actual shape of the letters in the original manuscript. So it's about the best thing you can get uh, if you don't have a photocopy machine or 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 or, or a camera. Um, and uh, then in the late 1860s, the book goes missing. And uh, we just have this facsimile. Now, what can we tell from the facsimile? It's hard to do proper analysis of a facsimile, but we can very clearly see that it looks like a 16th century Jewish uh, hand. I mean, the Hebrew, the, the, the style of the script looks very clearly uh, the, uh, what, what you would get in 16th century uh, Italy. Uh, so that's the that's the story of the of the manuscript in brief. So today it's missing, but we have this facsimile. So who first publishes uh, the diary? Um, so there are a bunch of of um, of uh, partial of 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 partial translations. There's a there's a there's a German dissertation which 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 which, which comes out with parts 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 of the di diary, but. Um, Neubauer does a complete version of uh, of 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 the diary, and then uh, the version that I've used is that of Eschkoli. Uh, is it better than Neubauer's? Uh, probably prob probably not, but it's the version that everyone everyone uses, and I've compared to Neubauer where 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 necessary. Right, that was the Hebrew more recent edition, but that's not in print anymore. I don't believe it's around. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, it's not around anymore. But uh, now there's this. So, uh, translation. How did you? You know, how'd you come to trans? How'd you come to translating in general? I don't know if we discussed it, but then how did you go about translating this work into English? Um. So, I think that translation is incredibly important, and especially of longer texts. That um, uh, trans translating forces you to translate the parts of a book that are interesting to you and that are not interesting to you. When you just translate excerpts or you talk about a text. You get to leave out parts, and I think the great thing about translating long texts is that you don't you, you don't leave out anything. Um, so I may be interested in the diary because I'm interested in uh, Jewish messianism, but somebody else may be interested in the diary because of its descriptions of the roles of women, you know, uh, in, in in politics and philanthropy around the house and the home and and, and all of that. So that's why I, I I like translating these texts, and I've translated. Uh, as you know, text before I've translated uh, Chaim Chapshush's Masot Chapshush before. Um, what what kinds of texts do I like translating? Uh, difficult ones. Uh, so my <laughs> my last book was a translation of a Judeo Arabic text that was written in uh, a dialect, uh, a Yemeni Jewish dialect of Arabic that is now extinct. Uh, so it was a real a real challenge to translate. Uh, Ruveni's diary was challenging in a different way. Uh, as I said before, an intermediate student of, of Hebrew can get the gist fairly fairly easily, 
but because the grammar is so anarchic, um, nailing Ruveni down, uh, trying to uh, put to, to to make each sentence make 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 sense uh, was a different kind of challenge, and that's what 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 really drew me what drew me to it. Um, does that sort of answer the question, or were you looking? Yeah, no, no. I think that that's interesting, and you so. Okay, I think that does. Now, I mean, we just discussed this before. I just want to like emphasize this. So, because many people know about this diary. Um, first of all, that's why I wanted to mention that you didn't go crazy with the notes, though. There are end notes, but they're lighter. You weren't, it was that on purpose. You didn't want to have it very heavy, overburdened with notes. Yes. So, I, I, um, I really feel that this is uh, a text in the past that captured a lot of people's imaginations. Um, there's a huge amount of historical fiction about David, David, David Ruveni. And uh, I wanted a broader audience to, to be able to, to be able to enjoy him. So I was, I was light on those, on those, on those end notes. Right. But there are end notes and there is also an introduction, as I mentioned, but you know, that, that, that's, you know, mm -hmm. the, the next thing is you mentioned there's a lot of historical fiction on him. And I mean, again, like we emphasize, some of this might be fiction. Many people think that, you know, this is the fiction. But you're saying that there are definitely things here we can verify elsewhere that's accurate. I mean, what's your take on it when reading the diary? How historically accurate is it? Or just we some parts are and we just won't know? Or is it not? What, what's your opinion on it? Um, on, on So it, it varies. Um, and... Uh, I think that Ruveni knew his knew his audience very very well, and um, I think that the question is not so much whether whether it, whether it's true, but trying to guess why Ruveni said it. Um, and I think that's the interest of the African part of the of the, of the diary. You 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 have a you you get the feeling that he'd seen other travel literature of the region, and uh, and knew what kinds of things worked with an audience and what kinds of things what kinds of things didn't didn't work. And there are a lot of people who don't like Ruveni. So uh, the early scholars who read uh, who read who read Ruveni saw him as a fraud. They saw him as this kind of this kind of frat boy who threw all of these parties and traveled, and without much regard for uh, uh, for the Jewish communities that he passed through, and often uh, with disastrous consequences for them. You know that it's it's quite possible that uh, uh, Ruveni's activities brought the Inquisition to Portugal. And that's 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 one claim that's that that scholars do make that he that he ultimately caused harm even if he didn't intend to do so. Um, but there are later readers, especially after World War One, who see uh, Ruveni in a different light. That he is uh, responding to Jewish powerlessness. That he is uh, uh, he is making a desperate bid uh, to save to save the Jews. And that's when you get this first. Um, uh, flourishing of historical fiction around Ruveni, seeing him as a kind of uh, a Herzl before uh, a Herzl before Herzl, but not exclusively Zionists are interested in him. You know, I, I mentioned in the book this uh, Daniel Bergelson, the Yiddish playwright, and uh, he's writing in Soviet Russia during uh, during the Holocaust, and he's fully aware of uh, uh, Jews being murdered, and he looks at Ruveni, and uh, he sees uh, he sees a parallel. He says Ruveni engaged in a hopeless task, uh, but with the belief that as long as somebody is fighting, 
they're still alive. That's it. So it's a it's a statement for life. And he was he was an anti-Zionist, Bergelson. He uh, he uh, supported Stalin Stalin's autonomous Jewish oblast in Azerbaijan. Um, but uh, he was attracted to Ruveni making this perhaps hopeless bid, uh, just so as not to cave to all the powers that sought to extinguish Judaism in his age. So I found that very very interesting that that reception of Ruveni. So finally, I mean, you translated this, you worked on this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you think there's a point, but what is the point? What can readers uh, gain from reading this diary now? So uh, I think there, I think there are various things. Um, I think that the fundamental. I, I'm writing a, a full biography of, of David Rubini right now, and uh, I want to change the way the early 16th century is is viewed that uh it's not an area that's focused on a lot by uh, by by historians and uh uh to the extent that historians talk about it it's just about this transition of sephardic jews from the iberian peninsula to the ottoman empire and i think that ruveni is very is a really good text for seeing the level of uncertainty the level of fear that was going on in these moments immediately after 1492, uh, the kinds of despair, the kinds of desperate schemes uh, that Jews uh, were forced to, to, to cook up to deal with some of the political events of the period. I also think it's very interesting uh, to look at uh, how at, at Ruveni's strategies for negotiation, that uh, he's seeing this great power game that is being played by Christians and Muslims. Uh, He's seeing this uh, uh, these new geographic how new geographical knowledge is being uh, circulated. He's looking at this age of 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 discovery, and he's trying to uh, cook up a Jewish answer uh, to what Muslims and and Christians are doing in this in this time period. So seeing as through the text as being in dialogue with some of the most important uh, geopolitical events of, of, of the period, uh, I think is, is key to really, to really enjoying it. I also think it's just a great literary text. I think that there's a, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a story there. It's, I see it as a how-to guide to being, to being um, a messianic claimant. Uh, you just don't get texts like this. Uh, texts are filled with, uh, when we look at Messianic texts, they're filled with Kabbalah and uh, with theological aspects. Ruveni is interested in sermons, in servant salaries, how you manage your entourage, who you bribe. Um, he has a list of expenses at the end of his, at the end of his book. It's this uh, uh, very mundane approach to the end of time, which I find just just fascinating and really grabbed me. And I mentioned this before. It's a really fun read. Uh, it's really enjoyable. Your translation is very readable. And so, you know, I'll put a link in the show's notes and listeners to people should check it out. It's, 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 a, it's a great read. If anyone's interested, especially in the time period, it's, just, it's, it's really just an enjoyable read. So uh, the last thing I'll just ask you, is there any further reading, though, besides the diary, if anybody's interested in reading up on more about Ruveni? Is there anywhere you can point them that they should read? So uh, in terms of the 16th century, there's a wonderful book by uh, Jonathan Ray called After Expulsion. And uh, it's a really short book, but a wonderful overview about what's going on in the, in the, in the 16th century. Um, 
Uh, in terms of uh, Ruveni himself, there is not all that much, but Moti ben Melech has uh, written a biography of Shlomo Mocha. And uh, unfortunately, it's only in Hebrew at the at, at, at the moment. I hope it gets uh, translated into English. And it deals with Ruveni as well. But uh, these are two interlinked uh, interlinked characters. So that's uh, definitely worthwhile uh, reading, reading, reading too. And um Maybe uh maybe I'll maybe I'll leave it there. But if anyone wants to contact me about a specific uh a specific uh topic within Ruveni, uh email me. You can find me on my uh, on, on, by Googling me and, and I'm happy to answer with a more specific bibliography. Yeah, exactly. They can reach out to me for your email or like you said, yeah. check online, they can find your email. So I'll link to Professor Ray, uh, after expulsion, I actually did a podcast episode with him. I don't know if it's going to be come out before or after this one, so I'll just oh. say that here for the listeners. They can check that out, as well as uh, Mati bin Malik. I did a podcast episode with him, and as well as I can link to his book and his academia page. He has some things, I think, on Ruveni written in English. I think he does have an article or two in yes. English, but the book mm-hmm. itself on Moho, which is phenomenal, is in Hebrew. Uh, yeah, just look and see. It's not, like I said, I hope it gets to English. It should. It's terrific. But there are some things on Ravani he has in English. I'll link to his academia yes. page. It should be available there. And uh, thank you, Professor Verskin, for uh, joining me to discuss uh, David Ravani and his diary. Thank you so much for having me.